0: Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at OppenheimerFunds.com.
1: Hey! Fans, friends, family, assorted random listeners who happen to stumble upon this podcast. We are here with the latest installment of Culture Caucus. That's Bloomberg Politics' podcast on the intersection of politics and culture. I'm John Heilman, and you're
0: Will Leach. I am Will Leach. That
1: is who I am. Oh, that's Will Leach. That's who you are. And we are here to bring you another edition of Culture Caucus. Today, we're going to be talking about America's game, America's pastime, the national pastime baseball and its connection to a whole bunch of really interesting political, social, and cultural phenomena and how the changes that are going on in baseball and the reaction to those changes mirror things that are happening in the presidential campaign. Later on in this podcast, we're going to be bringing in to talk about such topics the great Joe Buck um, from Fox Sports, a man who has been calling Uh, baseball games and football games on Fox Sports, uh, big, huge games, World Series, Super Bowls, uh, and football and
0: baseball since he was like eight years old. I don't know. He's a pal of yours, right, Will? Yes, I of course I'm. I am um, like all right-thinking Americans. I'm a Cardinals fan, so I grew up watching J- Jack Buck. His father was one of my heroes growing up, and so Joe Buck got the job first broadcasting for the Cardinals when he was in his early 20s. And I think it was it was difficult, uh, and he was. I have to say, instantly good. <laughs> he was instantly good. So we were. It was not a surprise when he when he took over and became a big uh, national star. So yes, I'm very honored to have him on, uh, and uh, he is. I can't think of anybody better to talk about baseball's place in the national consciousness than a guy that is the voice of baseball to the national in the national conversation
1: all right so we're gonna be getting on to joe buck in a few minutes but let's first Will, let's turn to the topic at hand the
0: grand old game america's game america's pastime baseball baseball it's back it's back it is officially back poor new yorkers all they wanted to do was watch their yankees on their first day their game got rained out in their first game uh, but other than that baseball is back baseball is full bore We have the the great, the old Roger Hornsby line of what asked him what he did during the winter. He set out and looked out the window and waited for it to be spring again so he could play baseball now it's here it's back there's actual baseball i could not possibly ha- be happier
1: it's amazing to me will that you've only been out of this city for like what seems like a like a new york minute and you've already lost so lost lost touch with the city you used to live in so completely <laughs> that you think that this is not now basically a mets town you know like as if anybody gives a flying fuck about the yankees like you know
0: it is a t- it is temporarily a Mets town. It no one in this town, town.
1: No one in this town like cares about the Yankees. The Yankees fuck the Yankees. I'll say it again. <laughs> fuck the Yankees and yes Alex, we are going to have this in the podcast. So today we're going to talk about baseball and the changing face of baseball and what it might say about our politics and the and, and the analogies, the parallels uh, between what's going on in baseball and what's going on in the presidential campaign. So you know, I want to the, the maybe the biggest thing that's happened in baseball um, socio culturally, demographically in the course of our lifetimes as as men of a certain age, has been the browning of baseball, right? The the fact that baseball has become a game that's dominated um, by Latin players, uh, players from the Dominican Republic, players from Puerto Rico, players from South America, players increasingly from Cuba. Um, they're not that there are that many, but they're going to be a lot more coming down the pike, obviously, now that we have a, a normalized relationship with Cuba. So uh, I, I want you to talk, Will, just to start things off, about an episode, a thing that occurred Last season, in the postseason, I believe, that in your mind, at least, I know, is symbolic of and symptomatic of uh, a kind of unease, a kind of, uh, a kind of generational discomfort that older generations of both baseball players and, and people involved in baseball at the, at the professional level and also a lot of fans have with the way in which the game has changed.
0: Yes, yeah, so Jose Bautista, who is a right fielder for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, he is one of the more exciting players in baseball. He's a big home run hitter. He's very, very powerful, very strong he hit a home run. He's from the Dominican Republic and he hit a home run against the Texas Rangers that, that can only be described as psychologically violent. <laughs> it was. You know, there had been a very there'd been, it was in the, the evening. It was particularly crazy inning where in the top half of the inning a run had scored because the uh, a ball thrown back to the pitcher had hit a player's bat and all sorts of madness was going on. It was a deciding game. It was just a crazy, crazy, crazy situation. And and then Jose Bautista hits this massive three-run homer, and it was, it was a bomb. And it was, there are certain home runs in baseball history. I, I, I'm a, yeah, This will come up a couple of times, but I'm a Cardinals fan, and I think probably the only one I can remember home run I can remember, much to America's dismay, I think anymore. Um, was probably Albert Pujols' home run off Brad Lidge in the 2005 National League Championship Series, the one where famously George and Barbara Bush looked like they were about to cry behind home plate. Uh, it, what, uh, that's the only homer I can remember that was this, really just th- this uh, dick-measuring homer. It's really the only way to look at it. just this very much. Uh, so what Bautista did, though, <clears throat> was he hit the homer. And, you know, baseball is a sport. That for years and years and years there's been a culture of hiding your excitement about the game. If you do something great, you're supposed. to If a pitcher makes like a great pitch and strikes a guy a guy out, you'll often, you almost always will see them put their glove over their face, specifically because they do not want to be seen as if they were showing up the other player, and so they they hold that emotion in. Bautista did not do that. <laughs> he hit the ball, he hit the home run, and then while the ball was still a launch launching, he took his back and just. Flung it <laughs> like flung it like fifteen twenty feet away, and just stared and admired this amazing thing that he had just done. Now this was a, a fans went nuts over this moment. People loved it. There is actually a statue that they're building in Toronto of his of his pose in this moment. It's just of, of the bat. Yeah, of yeah. I don't know how they're going to suspend the bat in the air, but they have him uh, in his stance. It's this very iconic moment but is also kind of against the way baseball has generally been played and generally been celebrated. So Goose Gossage, who is a Hall of Famer, uh, he, played, he was a pitcher for the New York Yankees and San Diego Padres and a really old-time, very much an old-school, old-time baseball player. Closer. Came out. A closer.
1: Rich was, Goose, Goose, Goose yeah. Rich Goose Gossage, um, a closer from the hallowed, um, celebrated Yankees teams of the 1970s.
0: Yes, and he said he called Batista a disgrace to the game he said he's actually a fucking disgrace to the game. If I may quote him accurately, you
1: should always quote people accurately, will especially if it involves profanity on this podcast.
0: Yes, yes, and uh, he said that he also called said nerds were turning baseball into a joke, uh, and he is indicative of what I find a very fascinating cultural moment in baseball in the idea that this is a game that has, you know, it, I think I it get, people try to act that baseball has somehow. Baseball is certainly less nationally popular than it used to be, if you go by a television ratings idea. Now, I would argue that there are are actually more people watching baseball than any other time in human history. It's just they're not all watching it at once in the World Series, the way they watch the Super Bowl at once or the way they watch the NBA Finals as much. But certainly baseball, there's a sense that baseball has fallen in the cultural consensus a little bit in the way, as opposed to, say, the 50s or the 60s. Well, one of the things that baseball has really tried to do is they have this influx of all of these young players. You have Bryce Harper, you have Mike Trout, you have Carlos Correa. And they are these young, exciting players, often Latino players, who are exuberant and are fun. Bryce Harper gave an interview in ESPN Magazine saying, Baseball's tired. We need to have fun. We need to do more. This needs to be a more exciting game. We need to show some emotion. And that, while it's, it is. Exciting for the young player, and after the after the young fan that baseball's been trying to get after is caused a very clear rift among your traditional baseball fan, among your old time baseball player, claiming that this game is somehow has lost its moorings and and it is, it is a disgrace, like like Gossage had said. So that that's what's interesting about what the place that baseball is in now is they are trying to go after these younger. Fans and these more engaged who like the emotion of the game, and frankly, after Latino fans who are are really not only, of course, one of the largest uh, growing fan ba- fan bases, but one of the largest population growing populations in the country, they've been marketing a lot more in that direction. And you're seeing more and more, and this is we'll, we'll get into the analogy on this. We're seeing more and more a lot of older white, often Southern players and fans rejecting and not liking the direction that the game is taking.
1: Right. And, and, like, at the core of this, I mean, like, we kind of, cut, kind of try to cut through the, the clutter here and get right to the point, right? I, the, the question that it raises is, you know, whether this is the di- discussion of, of decorum and the discussion of, um, of, of, of behaving in a classy way or what, what those who don't like what Batista and what others have done, whether that is really just code for we don't like you because you're brown, Right. I mean, that's kind of the issue. I mean, and again, I'm, you know, one of the things I'm always I'm reminded of here is, you know, that period of time in the NBA where, you know, Allen Iverson and a number of other Paul Pierce, a bunch of other African-American players who had a certain kind of swagger um, and were a little bit uh, who seemed like they were uh, had brought a kind of downtown swagger to the game where you would see white fans who would diss them and trash them for various reasons. Uh, related to the fact that, well, it's just not classy, it's not sportsmanlike. I don't like the way they carry themselves, when actually what they were kind of uncomfortable with was the notion that, like, there was a certain kind of of out-front kind of urban blackness to the way in which they carried themselves that people just found uncomfortable, especially white people found uncomfortable. So the question here, it seems to me, and we can talk about the politics of this in a second, and the ways in which this kind of mirrors various things that are going on more broadly in our politics, but the question is, just to to dispense with this, is it your contention, is it your belief that what really going on here is you've got a kind of revanchism among the kind of white, uh, again, Southern, Western uh, fan base of, the, of baseball that basically is you can't come out and say, I don't like the fact that this game is like uh, now filled with a bunch of people who don't speak our language and are from uh, these Latin American countries, and I don't like the way this looks and I'm uncomfortable with it because basically they're either not racist necessarily, although in some cases they probably are, but are kind of racially uh, they're, 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 it's not that they're racist, but that they're uncomfortable with, with, with the new diversity that's reflected on the field. And in the same way that, again, we'll talk about this more broadly here, but the way that those same kind of people in, in some instances are uncomfortable with the increasing diversity in America. So is that your view, that, the, that there's just a, a subterranean racial component to this that's driving it?
0: I do. I I think you know it it's partly racial and of course cultural in a lot of ways in the idea. That, like there have been Dominican players throughout baseball throughout baseball history. Uh certainly you know Orlando Cepeda was was one of the, was the great players, in one of my favorite Kings, Roberto Clemente. Like all the, there's been great Latino players throughout baseball history. They've not been the majority, however. And I think you're seeing more and more of that. You know, the the and I I think that there is a notion not to to find a point on it, but I think there is a notion. This is where the analogy comes in. I, I think there is a "Make Baseball Great Again" <laughs> sort of a movement that you see. Uh, there is a similarity between the people, the, the 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 things that you hear people saying that are Trump voters or at a Trump rally. The idea that something about America has been lost. About some, there is a change that is that has made this place or this thing that I love different in a way that I feel like something has been lost. I think it's undeniable when you hear goose gossage and guys like that saying that. Chipper Jones even, you know, Chipper Jones, uh, a recently retired player for the Atlanta Braves who will be in the Hall of Fame almost almost certainly on the first ballot when he comes out. You've heard him talk a lot about this, about the idea uh, about the idea that that you know, he does not like he's ripped on Yasiel Puig. He's ripped on a lot, you know, the the notion to me Puig is a really interesting flashpoint on this you know, cuz he was a Cuban player. He came in, had never really, like, he he had no idea what the, if he knew anyone, anything about baseball, it's maybe that Jay Z had the New York Yankees hat. But the idea that there were these cultural norms or, or how, you know, the, how all these, Ways the baseball was supposed to be played, and the right way the baseball was supposed to go he couldn 't have known any of that he was almost almost quite literally fresh off a boat from Cuba and he shows up and he sh- plays the game with exuberance and joy and excitement, and almost immediately was vivisected by uh, not only the baseball community but often, by the baseball press and, and you know and, and his teammates even in a lot of ways and I think there are certain reasons for that that are be- go beyond just just cultural uh, differences, but I do think that that is I think an underlying theme to this discussion is the idea baseball used to be like this now it is like this and I am uncomfortable with that in a way that I don't think is entirely dissimilar than what you see from from a certain Trump voter base.
1: Right. I mean you got like this kind of there's this pining for the the good old days, right? The good old days uh we we god we we got to get back to the good old days in America and and the good old days were the days um which no one says explicitly but the good old days in America were the period of time before the Voting Rights Act was passed before there was a full franchise for African Americans in the country where schools were largely segregated where you know uh, where where, the, where minorities kind of kept to their place <laughs> even though people again don't come out and say it quite that way but the good old days were the days in which uh, in which America was not in the kind of flux that it's in right now and not headed towards being a uh, majority minority population uh, when there was a lot less of that kind of social uh, dislocation location in which, uh, not incidentally, when America didn't have an African-American president. So there's certainly a lot of that, I think, that's true. And I think one good thought experiment in the context of baseball would be to ask this question, and you're much more uh, professionally, I mean, you know I'm a huge baseball fan and a huge sports fan, but I don't follow it in a professional way in the way you do, Will. So my question to you is this, do, do the kind of people, the goose gossages of the world who, uh, get, who got upset about Jose Bautista and others, uh, whether it's Puig or others, who behave in ways that they consider uh, to be d- somehow uh, not sufficiently classy, not sufficiently respectful of the game's traditions. Do those same people also get upset about Bryce Harper? Because, you know, Bryce Harper, uh, who plays for the Washington Nationals, one of the most talented young players in the league, maybe the most talented young player in the league. He's a bat flipper. You know, he's, a, he's a, 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 an arrogant, uh, in-your-face uh, exuberant kind of player. Uh, does he raise the hackles of of the white old guard in baseball in the same way that Batista et al. do? Uh,
0: somewhat. Somewhat, I think that's fair. Though Harper in particular, you know, Harper is not only an outgoing player, but is a brash need. He will actually say explicitly, Baseball is tired and boring, and I'm trying to make it exciting. So I, you know, you almost wonder. Like, Bautista's never said that. Like, you they, they, are they, they're, they're the thing that rankles old time players about them is almost something inherent in the way that they play. Harper has a lot of enmity as well against him, but a lot of it is because he is just he's like, yep, Gossage, you're full of it, <laughs> you're full of it. This game should be exciting. We should be going. We should be going nuts with this. I interviewed him for GQ before he even came into the league, and he said. You know, he was telling me, "I'm going to change this game. I'm going to make it more like the NBA. This is going to be. This is the way it's going to be." And so that, you know. I'll- that is something that Harper has taken in a way that I that is almost transcends <laughs> in any like Harper takes that on himself and he kind of enjoys it. Whereas a guy like Bautista or a lot of these other younger players, it becomes a player's no one says players like Harper say this because Harper is his own kind of unique character, but they'll say players like Puig and Bautista and, and so on. And you know, I also think it leads to an idea too of you know, Harper. Is so great, and Harper. One interesting, uh, interesting kind of parallel is Harper and Mike Trout, who are probably the two best players in best young players in baseball right now, and are both already on Hall of Fame tracks. Trout is very much an old school baseball guy. He's young, but he is very much a I am very traditional. I he says nothing interesting. He talks about he hustles out to a position. He always talks about playing the game the right way. And Trout has undeniably been accepted uh by Baseball in a way that Harper has not, and 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 I only and you know realize Harper had this amazing year last year, but up until last year, even though he'd been a very good player at a very young age, was seen as somewhat of a disappointment, and it was often connected to how he had not matured yet and he hadn't understood how the, you're supposed to play the game. And so, what was I think more very refreshing in this uh, cover story in in ESPN magazine is. Now that he's a superstar, he's not doing what baseball players generally do when they become superstars. They turn around and, and become part of the system. <laughs> and they're like, yep, these young players don't get it. He is now saying, nope, I'm at the my, peak of my powers, and we need to change this game a little bit. And uh, I, to be honest, I think it will work to a certain level, but I also think – a lot of people are going to be throwing at Bryce Harper this year. I think you'll see that a lot.
1: Right, I'll be throwing at him if, certainly if I'm on the mound anytime soon. <laughs> I'll be I'll be uh, delivering a little chin music yeah. in Bryce Harper's direction. You know, I got our brilliant producer here, Alex Trowbridge, uh, listening to you commenting about uh, about the about as we tried to talk about the tr- the parallel with the Trump voter and the old guard baseball fan pointed out the kind of irony of the fact that you know Trump is the ultimate bat flipper, you know, and so you got a kind of yeah. a, it's sort of a funny thing. You think of a lot of Trump voters who would say things like, you know, Barack Obama, he's a showboat. He's arrogant. He's egomaniacal. That guy, you know, I just can't stand that guy. He's so self-involved. He's so completely uh, into himself. He's just preening constantly from uh, from the White House. And yet they don't find any of those qualities that they find unacceptable in Obama. They don't find any of those things problematic in Trump. In fact, they love those elements of Trump, um, which does make you kind of question whether it's the things, whether those things are really... What they find objectionable, or whether there might be slightly some other things that they might find more objectionable about Barack Obama uh, than not just merely what they claim to be his egomaniacal uh, self-involvement. Um, again, as they sit there and, and praise Donald Trump uh, uh, as being the man who gives voice to their frustrations and and uh, and and resentments and grievances. Um, the qu- the question I have to ask you, Will, about about Trump. Let's just talk about this for a second. One of the things I find so fascinating about 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 Trump um, in the context of baseball. Is the fact that there are a bunch of owners of major league teams who are who are rapidly, rapidly anti-Trump. Um, you know, one of them, of course, is Joe Ricketts, who owns the Chicago Cubs. The Ricketts family does, and Ricketts has become one of the main funders of the Stop Trump movement. Has given a bunch of money uh, to the Super PAC that is trying to stop Trump from getting the Republican nomination. Just explain to me in your in your judgment how like the, the think about the baseball ownership group what what are the politics of of baseball owners broadly defined and then talk a little bit explicitly or more specifically i mean about 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 the thing that ricketts represents which is at least in some quarters of the baseball ownership world a virulent strain of conservative anti-trumpism
0: yeah they are the the baseball ownership has always a pretty much across the board always been a very conservative movement but in a conservative like bush fame like George W Bush was in fact an owner and wanted to be commissioner of baseball uh and so it's a very conservative group Bud Selig, uh I think was a, was another kind of conservative in that way they are appalled by Trump there are two the idea that there would be there's been three people mainly, the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals, Bill DeWitt, who is very close friends with with George W. Bush and, and is generally considered Rob Manfred's number two, uh, His main, the new commissioner Rob Manfred, his main leader among the ownership group. He is a very mainstream old-school conservative who who has uh, helped support some of the never-Trump people. But the two larger ones have been the, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, Randy Kendrick, who is the wife of the, the Arizona Diamondbacks owner, has said that she is willing to lose fans <laughs> to Arizona games to help stop Trump from being president. But yeah, and the Cubs in particular, Tom Ricketts is the owner of the Cubs. You know, it's funny because just a couple of years ago, the Ricketts family was being criticized just a few years ago. They were the ones that were being criticized for putting together the Jeremiah Wright ads against Obama in 2012, the ones that were encouraging Romney to use those. Now they are going after Trump. And I, you know, the the uh, to the point that Trump was so threatened by them that actually put out a tweet saying, quote, I hear the Ricketts family who own the Chicago Cubs are secretly spending money against me they better be careful they have a lot to hide and that's a lot that's come from Marlene Ricketts who is the mother of Tom Ricketts the owner she is actually one of the main supporters of the of, a, of the anti-trump pact and it's funny to see you know this the idea a couple years ago the idea that the Cubs had had conservative owners was almost a problem for the Cubs and now it is but they they've become this Trump like last stand against them and it's funny because you know Trump himself, He's he's not really a baseball guy. He's not connected to baseball in the way that he's connected to football football or connected to boxing, for example. But one fascinating thing about Trump, it perhaps inevitably, he's a huge Pete Rose supporter. (laughs) And that makes – a like there is a – I think that's just on the the basis of –
1: I think that's just on the basis of hair. Will they both have like really, yeah, really, yeah. really interesting hair? I think
0: the Venn diagram of people who think who think Pete Rose should be reinstated to baseball and Trump voters. I suspect is, it probably has a lot of crossover,
1: close to one hundred percent. Just to be clear, so the fact checkers, the people at Politifact and others who will attack us here. To be clear, Joe Ricketts is the patron of the Ricketts family. Right. Tom Ricketts is the is the is the one who runs the the, the Cubs. Uh, underneath but it's all ricketts and is his mom, his mom. Yeah, and, and Re- is his mom right, right this, but it's all ricketts family money basically and uh, um, it's it is fascinating that the rickettses have uh, a, 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 in one in one election cycle were interested primarily in doing anything they could to stop Barack Obama and now in this cycle are interested primarily in doing anything they can to stop Donald Trump that is a um, that's a, a an interesting turnabout over the course of 4 years for sure all right. So we're going to now wrap this up and take a little break uh, and get on to Joe Buck. You know what, Will? You should probably tell people at this point, where can you find this podcast?
0: You can find this podcast on iTunes. Please subscribe on iTunes and give us a very positive review. It helps people find the podcast if you do that. And you can also find us on SoundCloud. And of course, at Bloomberg Politics, you can find our the, that and all episodes. This is episode, I think this is episode seven, episode seven. I think it's the seventh episode. And we've had a lot of it now. So please come back. We We've had – I think this is the seventh episode. We've had many great guests before. You should go back and listen to some of our past ones if you've not even listened to this if, – if you enjoyed this one. And we know you did. I mean obviously. You're still here. So we know you liked it. But but never right, 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 right,
1: <laughs> right. Bloomberg, Bloomberg – and when Will says Bloomberg, you can find it at Bloomberg Politics. What he really means is BloombergPolitics.com. So uh, let's take a break, Will, and come back with Joe. Sounds great.
0: Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at OppenheimerFunds.com.
1: And we're back with the Culture Caucus podcast. I'm John Heilman. And I am still Will Leach. And we have with us, we're really honored, gratified, pleased, and, and, and flattered to have with us today, the great Joe Joseph Francis Joe Buck, Joe, how are you?
2: <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I don't get the uh, I don't get the middle name treatment all that often, but it it makes me smile. It was my dad's middle name. It was my grandfather's middle name, and it's my nickname when I'm playing golf with my with my friends. I am Franny on the golf course. <laughs> so heretofore, you can just reference me as Franny, and maybe I'll get less crap on the internet
1: that right. way. Well, just because of the notion of lighten up Francis, I was thinking we should call you Francis throughout the entire podcast. But, um, <laughs> that, that works. Um, uh, so, Joe, Will and I have been talking uh, on this podcast about the the changing face of Major League Baseball and the various kind of political, cultural, social uh, ramifications of that. Um, you know, You've been calling baseball games for a long time. I mean, you started... Uh, out in this business at an absurdly precocious place, very young, right? So just, right. Just, just talk about like the way in which at a general 30,000 foot level, the way in which the game has the, the face of the game has changed and the discomfort that that has caused among uh, the old guard in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I
2: think there's been a shift, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I don't think that it's a bad thing, and, and I'll go into it. I don't, I don't want to get long-winded and boring, which maybe I've already accomplished, but I, I think when you think about back when I started, which I did get started early in the early 90s, uh, it, was a different, it was a different looking game. It was a different feeling game. It was a different game on television. It was a different game nationally. Uh, you know, my personal thought on this is that baseball has become a real regional team by team uh feel and you know we, we deal with it at fox when we're doing a world series and you're doing uh, a world series between two of the smaller markets i mean in those two markets it's insane i mean you, there's nothing bigger in the world but beyond uh it can be a tough sell unless you get a long series and then you think about the way. You know, this this off season started and the war of words, if if you can have a one sided war between Goose Gossage and Jose Batista, I thought Batista really took the high road and and uh, and really handled that well when Goose Gossage called him out for the bat flip last year during October and during the postseason. And yeah, I, I think back you know, it's hard to say back in the day, but it is now, you know, it's been twenty plus years. For me, broadcasting, even at Fox, uh, it, it was a different game. You know, the style was not in it. Uh, if, if you dared to step out of the middle lane and showed a little personality or flair, it was almost like a stopwatch started ticking, and you were waiting for that guy to get knocked on his butt. And it just, I, I think there's room for both. And I, I don't think Gossage is wrong for saying what he said. He has every right to, to say and feel how he feels and what he said is right within the realm for me. And Batista has every right to do what he feels he wants to do with the game. I, I think it's it's wrong to rule out one side or the other. There's room for the old school. There's room for the new school. But there's no doubt uh, there's been a shift. And, uh, and, and it's a different-looking game. And I think in, in five to ten years, it'll be a different-looking game than it is right now.
0: Yeah, a lot of this does feel like a generational. On one hand, it's a generational thing in that all of these young players getting yelled at for showing too much exuberance. Now, I fully expect them all when they are thirty-four and thirty-five to be yelling at the young players, and when they retire, you, yeah. Like, you, I, I think I've even seen Pedro Martinez is really good about this, but I've even seen like recently retired players say like, all oh, these kids today, as if they weren't playing like three years ago," and so on. So you certainly yeah, everybody kind of goes that way. But I also think there is frankly a cultural aspect to it particularly with the influx of Latino players you know that tends uh, you saw this a lot with Yasiel Puig I think in a lot of ways like when he came in you know this was a guy that had never really played a high level of organized baseball at all and he came in and when he hit a home run he did what I think a lot of us would actually do when we hit a home run which would raise our arms in the air and be very excited about it and you know this is a game where people are encouraged to if they have a moment of, of excitement to hide their face in their glove lest the other team think they're showing them up by expressing joy. Do do you think that? Do you think there's an element of that? The idea that you know, I think it seems like a lot of the older players that tend to be more upset with this, frankly, tend to be white or uh, and or southern, and a lot of these younger players are Latino are are from perhaps a culture where exuberance and showing excitement on the field is maybe more common.
2: Yeah, I think so. I would agree with that. Um, I, I think you see it in the World Baseball Classic, you know, and and I you we could. Argue the value of, of that endeavor uh, for a while, but I think just to take the the look in each dugout when you have the Dominican Republic team, you know, doing what they do, it, it's like my God, these guys are actually having fun playing baseball. You know, somebody hits a home run and they're jumping over the the front rail of the dugout and. I love that. I I love that people show that they care, that they just did something big. I mean, fans are going nuts. Fans are going crazy. And these are the guys that did it. And it's not just a guy hitting the home run. It's a guy's coming over the top rail or spilling out of the dugout to welcome somebody back. And this isn't just the walk-off home run. This is, you know, this is a home run or a big hit during the course of the game. I, I like that. I like a little life. And I do on some real level identify with Bryce Harper, who's in his early 20s, who's as big a talent as we've seen come along in a long time and just starting to refine it, say, you know, this can be a tired game. And tired is a, is a brutal word to assign to anything, <laughs> let alone a game that means so much to so many people. And, you know, showing some flair is, is a good thing. I th- when you bring up Puig, though, there's a couple of distinctions there. I, I get the hit a home run, raise the arms, go around, you know, have some flair, fired it into the infield, maybe dare a runner. But walking out to your position at the, at the beginning of the half inning where guys are actually waiting until he gets out into right field or, you know, blowing a ball that's bouncing out into right field and then kind of loafing after it because he thinks that his arm will make up for him not running – uh, that, that stuff, I think rubs teammates the wrong way. That's not an old guard thing. There are teammates that get tired of that stuff and say, come on, you know, it's slayers one thing, but hustle and desire or the look of a guy who's really wanting to compete. That to me is, is in a different category.
0: Well, one thing I thought was interesting about the Harper thing, too. <clears throat> you know, this is a cover of ESPN Magazine, their big MLB preview issue. And it appeared to be almost a gauntlet thrown. Like, you know, I interviewed him for Esquire before he joined, before he was even in the majors. And he talked about how I want to be like the LeBron of baseball. I want, I want, I wish players were more like the NBA and you could dunk on a guy and you could have some excitement. It's one thing for, you know, for a new player to come in and, and, and uh, you know, get used to the game in that way and get accustomed to the game that way. Harper is this autom- is very, not only a very brash guy, very outgoing guy, but maybe one of the best two or three players in baseball. And the uh, for him to, to come out and say that felt like a gauntlet thrown. And, you know, you, t- you talked earlier about how sometimes it's a challenge outside of a regional game and i think what harper was trying to say is well maybe one of the reasons that the people the game seems tired to a lot of people is we don't allow players to enjoy themselves and have fun do you think a player of his caliber can make a change in that or is it or is it still just going to be now it's going to be like now, Gosch is going to go after him, and then, and then other retired players will, will come after him that way. Do you think he can make a change in that way?
2: Yeah, I do. I think he's that good. I think he's he's the kind of guy that—and there are a handful of them in the game still today. Ironically enough, Alex Rodriguez is still in this category, to me at least. If he is at the plate, you, you want to walk back out of the kitchen and, and go into wherever the TV is and watch his at-bat. And, and Harper— is at the top of that list. He and Trout, I mean, they, obviously, they're, they're the two best young players, but they have that power to do that. That excites me. As somebody who likes the game of baseball and who makes his living inside of the game of, of baseball, I'm all for it, you know? And, and I, I appreciate Harper doing that. I, I had that that uh, a copy of that ESPN, the magazine, and, you know, it's got that GQ feel to it. It's got the look-at-me feel to it. And a little bit of the NBA... Could go a long way. You know, they, the NBA's done a brilliant job of marketing itself, and when, you know, whether it's LeBron James or even before him Jordan, on the biggest games they came, they went off the air, and you didn't, you didn't see the end of the broadcast until you heard from Jordan. Or now you don't see in the playoffs if if the Cavs are in the game, you, you don't not hear from LeBron James. I, those guys have to step up front and center. And I'm with you if this is what you're saying. If Harper's that good, and I think he is, and he wants to put the bullseye on his back and say, "Look at me, look at us, look at this game," then I, I do believe he has the power to to make a difference, and, and and he's got the clout to do it. So
1: I'm going to ask a question and try to put a kind of fine point on this. And the question may may be talking about long winded, may be a little bit long, but I'm going to I'm going to try to be as concise as I can about this. Right, so. One of the things that Will has said, and Will and I spent a lot of time talking about politics and how it intersects with culture and, and how it intersects with sports. One of the things that Will has observed uh, to me is the notion that the way that retired baseball players now talk about the game today, which is a browner game than it was you know, 20 years ago or certainly 40 years ago, has a kind of similarity to the way that uh, the voters who show up at Donald Trump rallies talk about America Right, that there's a kind of nostalgia. That what, what what they talk about is, is, you know, we've lost the the America that I grew up in. You know, we got to get back to the old America. You know, the, the 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 and and what that is in in the case of a lot of Trump voters, at least, is you know is a longing for a less diverse, uh, whiter, more homogenous America. So, you know, my question to you, Joe, is whether is how much you think that when you hear retired baseball players and what we'll call the old guard for the purpose of this discussion You know when they talk about it, uh, talk about when they when when they express discomfort with some of the things we've been talking about here, or when they talk about the old days in the game. How much of that do you think is freighted with a certain kind of racial nostalgia? And I'll I'll just add this one last thing. You mentioned the NBA a second ago. I mean the NBA went through this some years ago, right? Where a lot of people, when they saw Allen Iverson and other players, they would say, you know, they would they would found various coded ways of talking about their disapproval of the way that Iverson and others carried themselves. And if you listen to it carefully, all you could really hear was that they were kind of uncomfortable with the notion of like how black the NBA was now, right? So I'm just curious about that. Like how much of this do you think there is a level of discomfort um, with the fact that the game is becoming, not? it's not like the way that the game looked before and that that makes people, as I say, a little squeamish with the notion that this game is becoming uh, basically a brown man's game.
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I completely agree with that. I, I think more with regard to the retired players, if we're sticking on that side of the fence, I mean, leaving Trump out of it for a second, yeah. and, and that whole idea. I think more of the retired players, there is an inherent bitterness to money and, and, and the way these guys are earning a living and guys that are getting paid before they've really done anything. Guys that, you know, in the case of Gossage, if you want to get Goose Gossage riled up, talk to him about the great closers of today's game. He'll go nuts because he'll say, well, back in my day, you know, this wasn't a one-out save. There, there weren't right. one-inning saves. There's a three-inning save guy. I think there's a lot of bitterness with how much, to a guy like Gossage, easier his job is considered today than what it was then. The money he made then, and he's doing card shows now trying to supplement his income. And, and it, it's just a different world financially. I get what you're saying with regard to, uh, to kind of multicultural look at this game. I mean, you're going back into the, you know, the fifties, certainly the sixties with major league baseball where it was integrated. And uh, you know, that it was, I'm sure a different looking game. I, I wish I was old enough to have seen baseball in the sixties. That to me has always been that fantasy time in my mind of when, baseball was was at its best with this intersecting of some of the greatest players in the history of the game all on the field at the same time. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure the game looked a lot different back then with regard to Trump, I, I get exactly what you're saying and, and you can you can see some of that no doubt. I mean that there's I think most everybody would admit there's there's a certain element of that. I also think with regard to Trump that there's there's some, feel by middle America or maybe even on the coasts that it's it's somewhat refreshing and, and take his message out because a lot of what he says is just crazy that the politically correct times are are getting really constricting and old for people and and so to take it back to goose gossage what he said he has every right to be able to say what he said but but Everybody beat him back into the middle ground. And he, there he was at the end of that saying, I'm apologizing. I got a little crazy there. But if you know, if you saw him in the hallway, you go, yeah, hell yeah, that's how I feel. That, he didn't get crazy. That's how he felt. Why can he not say how he felt? The same with regard to Trump, it's, at least at the beginning of this, and maybe this is all played out by now. What was at least, you know, drawing to a television said, is, my God, I can't believe that guy just said that. Not always right. It's not politically correct, but I think there's some appeal to that. So I, I I think there's a lot of things going on here. I'm I'm not I'm just personally not comfortable throwing just race 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 into it. I'm sure there's an element of that, uh, but but I, I think there's more sides to it, more facets to it, especially with regard to the baseball thing. This, yep. this is a much different game, not just racially uh, than it was back in the '60s. I mean, that's a long time ago. You
0: know, you have uh, obviously a connection to St. Louis. I also have a connection to St. Louis, and that I root for the best baseball team and in the world that has the best fans and everything It's wonderful. Um, uh, anyway, that's why that's why, but, I've, in, that's why
1: I've enjoyed the, that's why I enjoyed that World Series where the Giants whipped your ass so much. Well,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, John roots for enough baseball teams that eventually a couple of them will win the World Series. Um, so anyway, one thing that I you know certainly I was there in uh, 2014. I was actually at that game. I don't know if you saw, but there were Black Lives Matter protesters outside Bush Stadium. They uh, they actually protested by the smoking section uh, outside Bush Stadium, which is uh, I, I I as a former smoker, I've been to that area and know that that's not always necessarily people that are conducive to the Black Lives Matter movement. So you could see uh, a a potential uh, conflict there. But one thing you know, I've talked to. I you know I my, I grew up watching the '80s teams, but my father grew up watching the those teams in this in the mid '60s, and he talked about how. He's, talk, he's talked to me about how those teams with Bob Gibson and Mike Shannon and, and you know, and, and Orlando, Orlando Cepeda and, you know, and all of these, like they were in a way were a unifying thing for not only people in St. Louis, but people throughout the Cardinals fan base and really throughout the country. They were a unifying multicultural thing in a way that now – he was appalled to watch that kind of battle, not because not because he was necessarily on one side or the other, but the idea that baseball was this thing that was almost being was being used as a wedge to drive uh, between people rather than something that used to kind of connect them. Do you see among baseball's fan base and even, you know, I mean, this, you know, you, you, you cover, you obviously uh, cover football as well. You, you you're very connected to that. Do you see a difference in the fan base? Not even just so much color wise, but just like age wise and generational wise, you know, baseball pushes now so much, these young players, do you see among the fan base a I don't want to use the word conservative, but almost a. It feels like baseball's fan base is different than say the NBA's fan base and, and the NFL's fan base, and whether that's a good thing and what they can maybe even do about that.
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, baseball still is is in that you know ridiculous song. I guess it was Chevrolet, baseball, apple pie, whatever the hell it was, and it it <laughs> feels like. You know, it's kind of is based in that that conservative, at least by today's standards, conservative uh, category. You know, and and yeah, you do see, I think a little bit you see a different crowd at a uh, at a Cardinals home game than you would say a Blues home game. Um, I can't speak to a Rams home game anymore, a because it's <laughs> not pertinent, and b because they really had no fans that that were showing up by the end of it with regard to that mess um, and it wasn't the fans fault in my opinion, but we can talk about that another day. I I think, uh, yeah, I, I think there's something to that and there's no doubt, you know, when, when, when they protested there, it's a smart move. I mean, you can do it in a outside of a library or you can have the protest outside of easily the biggest thing that we have going on in the city of St. Louis during the course of the summer or really any part of the year. And that is a Cardinals game. And if, if you want attention, that's where you go and I think that's an easy you see the clash there because this is this is an issue that should be important black lives matter to everybody um, and 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 that should be something that everybody should be aware of what it can't do is then mean that you're picking any particular uh, race over law enforcement and, and law enforcement covers multiracial, Divides and and it, it's 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 a multi-racial racial institution. So I I think that's what gets everybody uh, clashing. When if you step back, you realize, well, hell yeah, you know this this is a good cause on all sides. And and so for your father to see that going on outside of a cardinal baseball game, I'm sure brought him back to back in the day when when times were different and they were in the '60s, and then this great cardinals team came along right in the Midwest, uh, and, and it was Cepeda, uh, and it was Javier, and it was Mike Shannon, and for a while it was Maris, and it was Bob Gibson and Lou Brock and Kurt Flood, and, and nobody cared who was what. They were Cardinals, and everybody loved watching this team play. That had to be a very healing, uh, good, warm feeling for, for people and, and and especially those involved. I've talk, I've worked with, and talked to a lot of those guys, and uh, and they felt that you know it was important in this city and it was important in those times.
1: So Joe, let me let me switch to t- let me switch gears a little bit um, and and ask you about uh, about Rob Manfred. Um, I was telling Will earlier that I was out in Wisconsin last week uh, covering the Wisconsin primary, and I had the chance to go and spend some time with Bud Seelig, um, something I'd never done before. Uh, and one of the things that Bud and I talked about was the extent to which the commissionership is basically a political job. And, you know, we talked about, we reminisced about his time as commissioner and, uh, rather amusing. How did
2: you find him? I, 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 am anxious because I, I, I think Bud Selig is, is one of the most decent, nice men I've I've met in professional sports. I mean, I, I know everybody's quick to pick on him, but I, I'm a, Tremendous fan of his, especially personally.
1: I mean, I disagree with various things about the way in which he ran the league, but I have to say just at the level of, of the personal, the the level you're talking about, I agree with you 100%. He's a very nice guy. I, I'm really super biased. My dad was, came from Milwaukee, and, and my dad is basically Bud, Like, just in terms right. of his. I mean, they're they're basically <laughs> the same guy. And, you know, my, my, my father has all that Wisconsin kind of moderate, um, conservative with a small C in the sense of a very uh, self-deprecating, um, uh, civil – Uh, smart, uh, you know, kind of socially tolerant, um, uh, but, 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 uh, kind of probity and and kind of a just just kind you know um the, right. the, two, the two of those guys my, my dad and bud could go into court could go eat a chili dog together and they could talk for six hours and, and they have all the same cultural touchstones. so i see a lot of my dad and bud selig and and and, and I, I had a really nice time chatting with him the funniest thing about the about the encounter i said to him at one point jokingly i thought i said you know being the commissioner of baseball is kind of like being Uh, you're you're sort of like being your political figure. I said, you know, you're kind of like the president of the United States. I said, although, you know, some would argue that the president of the United States has more power uh than the baseball commissioner. God, was.
2: I was gonna say less. Well, because. I said I
1: said some would argue. I said I said, how do you feel about that? Who has more power? And Bud sat there and thought about it for a really long time before he was finally willing to concede the notion that the president had more power than uh than the commissionership. <laughs> um he, he was not willing to concede that the Pope was more powerful than the commissioner of baseball though. That was a he, he basically said, well, I don't think I don't know about that. <laughs> Anyway, so, right. my, so my question for you is this: You know, he was such a dominant figure in baseball for such a long time. And again, just just thinking about the political skills, he went obviously dealt with the steroid uh, scandal, uh, the steroid era, and dealt with a lot, whole lot of other things. Talk about, from your point of view, what Bud's uh, Bud Seelig's uh, his skills as a political, as a leader of the sport, as a, a kind of gar- guardian of the institution of baseball. And then talk about how you think. The, 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 what you see so far in Rob Manfred in that area, like it, what what his challenges are and what you can see from the little we know about his capacities to meet those kind of, again, big institutional challenges for the
2: game. I think Bud was really good behind the scenes. I, I think where Bud got picked on was how he appeared in front of microphones and cameras. and And that is what, now, there were other issues, obviously, you know, he was the, he was the commissioner of baseball during the steroid era. If you want to put quotes around it and, you know, act like performance enhancing drugs are out of professional sports now. Ha <laughs> uh, Yeah. I mean, we all are smarter than that. Uh, but he, he was the guy on the baseball side and, and he is on the baseball side clashing with the guys on the. Players Association and their union side uh, during that time. So what I think held him back the most, at least with regard to public opinion, was kind of how he reacted and looked and the things he said sometimes when a, a micro... He wasn't dynamic. And that's why, you know, if you want to shift gears and go back to the political side of it, you know, that's really what we're... what this whole thing is about now. You know, who's best in front... who can put on the best show? Who can put on and, and and I think I would argue that putting on the best show in a debate or putting on the best show in front of cameras, what, be it live or taped, is a part of the job. But but right now it seems to be in some ways the only determining factor. Who who looked nervous on the stage during the debate? Who who made who stepped in the who stepped in the puddle? Who said something they shouldn't have said? Oh my God! It was live TV, but yet they made a mistake. Oh my God. And and you lose, I think, some of the better candidates because they're not photogenic, or they're not that swift on their feet, or they can't act. It's really more acting. You know, that's what Trump's doing. It's an act, and and people get sucked into that act. So, to go back to Bud, Bud didn't have that act, but I think he was really good behind the scenes. What's his legacy? You know, I I think with regard to the wild card, that was a big thing. I think interleague play, I still enjoy interleague play. It was bigger when it started, and you can argue that. Um, But I I think the all-star game counting at least has put, and I know Will is peeling his skin off right now, is the all-star game counting is a big deal to me because it makes that game better (laughs) as opposed to just, you know, everybody gets one at bat and then they're back to net jets and back home during the all-star break. I think it makes the best all-star game better. There's a form of revenue sharing with the internet uh, and, and those rights amongst clubs. There's a lot that he did behind the scenes uh, that I think the average fan isn't aware of. Manfred I, I think is is in position now where there's a lot of harmony between the association and ownership. And and I think a lot of good things can get done, whether it's tougher drug testing, um, whether it's growing this game globally, which I know is, is their number one desire to do I, I i think he's a very smart guy and has a good way about him and and i i think he was the right pick i wasn't sure and and now that i've been around him and seen him in that position for over a year now I, I like what, what he's about, and, and you know, I, time will tell. But I think he was the right selection. I'm excited to see what he does. All right.
0: Well, thank you for your time, sir. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. I'm not going to battle you on the all-star thing. I've just not. I've, I've given. I know. I know. I know. I, I, the, after the Adam Wainwright pipe job to Derek Jeter, that was my ultimate. Okay, let's, but let's uh, stop that. But let's stop for that. But mostly, thanks for, uh, for coming on. Now, you've got a book coming out in November, right?
2: In November, yes. Uh, uh, well, it's thin enough where if you have a table that's got one leg that's shorter than the other, you can even it out. Let's just leave it <laughs> at that. Maybe that's what it'll be good for. Well, then I'll,
0: I will always be able. I will get it and and I will even out my bed. So I'll always be able to say I have Joe Buck's book at my bedside, and by that I mean it will be keeping my bed
2: it, people, uh, it's, what, it's what it's what are winning by Will Leach uh, is doing for me right now. So we can be uh, <laughs> we can be brothers in that. Well, listen, we look forward to it
1: because when you, Joe, when your book comes out, we're not only going to put you back on this podcast, but we're going to get you on television. And, and, and bring you into the studio in New York and, Let's put, you, do it. and put you on with all due respect because we'd love to do that. Um, I want to ask you one last question before we let you go, though, even though this is uh, only tangentially related to the rather serious and weighty topics that we've uh, covered so far in this conversation. Uh, who you got in uh, as NL and AL champions uh, for this year. Who are, who are we going to see in the World Series if you had to bet right now? Uh,
2: again, this is going to be Will without skin, but uh, I'm buying <laughs> into the Cubs. Uh, I, I just think their depth, and I thought Zilbris was the biggest signing that they made and really maybe the best across baseball over the offseason. They have the right manager. They have a good young team. I, I would pick the Cubs yeah. in the National League as we sit here now. I yeah, mean, who yeah, knows yeah. what happens. Of course, of And, course. and then uh, in the American League, Man, you know, every year in my career, you go right to the American League East. And I don't know that you do that. I know a lot of people still like Toronto. I, I'm Kansas City. I, I just, uh, I, it happened again in the, you know, game, the first game of the season. They get an okay start and then it's bullpen just mow you down. I just don't see with the depth in that bullpen game after game with that lineup and their approach. I think they're the best in the American League. I say Cubs, Kansas City. All
1: right. That's, those are totally respectable picks. Just tell me this just as I sit here in New York City and as Will will mock me for having too many teams that I root for, but um, is this going to be a, just year your crushing disappointment for fans of the New York Mets?
2: No. I, no, I think this is the beginning of a, a golden era for them. I, they almost can't miss with their young rotation. Some of those guys have gone through surgery already, and that's a good thing. Uh, I, they'll be better when they get Wheeler back. I, I just, I, am wondering the, uh, interest level of Cespedes after the contract and kind of showing up like in, you know, sports cars and horses and whatever he was doing during spring training, you know, it's time to play baseball and honor the deal. Uh, but, but, you know, yeah, that, that would be my number two pick. I, I think the, the two teams that ended up in the national league last year, the two best teams this year and and we'll see who ends up in the world series if, if it's either one of them. But I, those would be my two picks. All right.
1: Uh, Joe Buck, you are uh, a gentleman, a scholar, uh, and uh, really generous for coming on the podcast. Thank you.
2: I was a B scholar. <laughs> she, she <sprinkled laughs> well, I didn't say you were at a g- big university. I didn't say you were a great
0: scholar.
1: I just said you were a scholar. <laughs> okay.
2: True.
0: I'd like to add in one more uh, biographical name for you having now that you've picked, the Cubs win the World Series. Joe Buck, you are history's greatest monster.
2: <laughs> exactly. I I stepped into that last year when somebody asked me in August what it would be like to do a World Series at Wrigley, and I was like, "Well, are you kidding me? It'd be unbelievable." And then they ran it in the St. Louis paper uh, when the Cardinals and Cubs were going to play in the Division Series. Yeah, like, stepped right oh, in. Yeah. It. But uh, but it, I, you know, I cannot tell a lie.
0: <laughs> All right, well thanks Joe. thanks for coming on and uh, we'll, we'll we'll chat again when the book comes out.
2: All right guys see ya
1: thanks again to our good friend Joe Buck for coming on the, the podcast. That basically wraps it up will how do you think we did today?
0: Uh, listen i I feel like we like many 11 team Cardinals teams before us, we won the World Series in this podcast.
1: No, I just the idea that you're comparing this podcast to the most despicable team in sports really makes me sad, Will. It makes me
0: somebody sad. doesn't like championships. Someone yeah, doesn't somebody doesn't like championships.
1: Know, so I just don't like St. Louis, and I really don't like you very much right now. But we are going to bring this thing to an end right now, Will. It's been a real pleasure being with you. You are off at the Final Four right now, I believe. Uh, I am not. Uh, I'm now uh, back in New York City after three months on the campaign trail, and I'm happy to be back home here. It gives me a chance to get into a groove, including making sure that we stay on a really regular schedule of doing this podcast, which is, of course, called Culture Caucus. Wilk, where can you find this podcast?
0: You can find this podcast on iTunes. Please give us a nice review on iTunes. Uh, It makes it easier for people to find the podcast. You can also find the podcast on SoundCloud and, of course, on BloombergPolitics.com. Not .org, not BloombergPolitics.org. It is BloombergPolitics.com.
1: That's fabulous. Uh, Tune in again in a couple of weeks uh, when we come back with another scintillating topic, about politics and its intersection with the big C. That's culture. Good day. Bye.
0: Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com.